0: I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins Podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins Podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music and pop culture. Professor Cameron Tonkinwise is an international expert in design studies and transition design and the research director of the Design Innovation Research Centre at UTS. He writes and speaks extensively on the power of design to drive systems level change to achieve more sustainable and equitable futures. Cameron has long advocated for design studies and their importance in ensuring the social responsibility of design professionals. His expertise has reshaped traditional thinking around how designers should be educated. He has established design studies programmes at the Parsons, the new school for design in New York. Carnegie Mellon University and UTS, which have transformed international design curricula. He has written many influential articles on design thinking, design ethics, design research and speculative design. More recently, Cameron has emerged as a leading voice in transition design due to his long-standing research and teaching around sustainable design. Hello and welcome Cameron. What inspired and attracted you to transition design in the first place?
1: I might need to uh, just throw back a bit and say um, I have a background in philosophy and I sort of was trained in the era of a lot of talk about great paradigm shifts, the kind of Foucauldian archaeology shifting from one version of humanity to another version of humanity. And, And a lot of the philosophy that I was trained in was really about Uh, The job of philosophy is to change the institution of knowledge, make whole new types of uh, environments for researching and teaching, um, that that we can change everything by changing the way we research and teach. Uh, And so, you know, I, I sort of grew up, as it were, thinking that the job was to make large level systems change. Um, Through that kind of history, I was involved in a lot of ecological politics uh, and then started studying with Tony Fry. Tony Fry is a design theorist who um, is is very extreme in terms of his sense of just how much of a crisis questions of sustainability are, uh, and therefore very extreme on the fact that everything, every single thing must change, and that every everything about the way we do things at the moment is contributing to to defuturing, to taking our future away, to being unsustainable. So, I sort of grew up in this paradigm-shifting world, and then I was very much working with a design theorist on really significant levels of change. And so, I spent all of my career trying to find mechanisms for for undertaking systems change, to see how designers could help make large-scale change. And that was a really particular version of sort of creativity. It's it's not trying to find something around expression. It's not trying to find something innovative. It's trying to find change mechanisms. Uh, And so when I had the great opportunity to go to Carnegie Mellon's headhunted by Terry Irwin, who herself had been brought back from having studied deep ecology at Schumacher College and was brought back to to really make a big difference to one of the leading design schools in the world. Uh, I got to work with her and her partner, Gideon Kossoff, and and we started talking about ways of codifying design-based approaches to affecting transitions in societal systems how to transition us out of a carbon-intensive economy to a, a decarbonized society, how to move from globalized supply chains to relocalizing, how to move from uh, ownership society to one more based on commons and sharing economies. And so we began to call this transition design. So it was a very particular moment in which we were trying to identify how to change design education so that designers, Would not just be inputting creative solutions to current problems into the existing paradigm, but instead always be solving current problems with a view to how to change whole aspects of our jargon is socio-technical regime, the way in which our society is kind of locked into current ways of living and working, and the way in which designers, as they make these human-scale interventions, at uh, the level of interactions, everyday uh, practices, they can actually help stitch together large-scale change, uh, sort of switch points, phase change in which the whole system begins to change and reorder itself and restructure. So transition design was very much that, that ambition. It's not a method. It's not a, it's not a thing. Um, it's an aspiration to redirect the creative practices of designers to the project of coordinated societal change rather than just uh, feeding into existing situations.
0: Before delving into the domain, I must add, as a communicator you have an authentic power of voice and a gift for language, where you have a playful wit and inventiveness with words, which sparks a connection to the imagination.
1: And that's a rare talent. That's very Um, lovely to hear. As I say, I'm in this sort of weird, I think of myself as quite an unreflective person. So I don't spend a lot of time sort of thinking about what i'm doing and and how i'm doing which is which is sort of rude and and i have the privilege of being able to do that you know i'm just quite unreflectively cruising through life but as i sort of tried to indicate just then i have been pleasantly surprised by people coming and and saying saying something like you just said like yeah there there is there is a, a translation capacity yeah 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 um yeah, I, I, yeah, one of the, one of the first teachers I ever had at university was a woman called Liz Gross, uh, who's a, a sort of feminist post-structuralist uh, uh, teacher. Uh, she was at Sydney University at the time, now at Rutgers, extraordinarily famous now. And I had this incredible privilege of learning with her. And so I kind of left school and gone to university, had no idea about philosophy and had no idea about the kind of revolution that was occurring under post-structuralism and, um, you know, what's badly named as kind of the postmodern turn that was happening at that time. So these were like really heady philosophic concepts. And and I do remember almost within three or four weeks of sitting in a, a subject she was running called psychoanalysis and feminism. I think I did another subject with her called body and philosophy, and I, and she had this incredible lucidity, this incredible ability to translate from some of the most difficult work. You know, people people who are just vilified as being obscurantist. Yeah. She just had this incredible ability to. To translate, So I have this very conscious effort of, of, a very conscious memory of sitting there thinking, wow, I want to be that. I want to be a translator yeah. like her. Um, but as I said, I was never reflective enough to sit in those classes and think, I wonder how she's doing it. I should learn how to do it. I just feel very lucky when people do respond and say, uh, you've, you've managed to fulfil that ambition even if you didn't uh, in any concerted way work out how to do it. <laughs>
0: So there you have it. You've just invented some words there, which takes me to the vintage classic zone of the satire, surreal, and black comedy humour of Monty Python and and also the British sitcom style um, of Rick Mayle and Ben Elton. Those uh,
1: those are words to my ears. That that The the references you're drawing on um, are, are, yes, much as they might be politically incorrect these days, are are, are (laughs) what I was growing up thinking of. So, So to be... Yeah, to, to have it suggested that I have elements of those would yeah is is uh, quite flattering. I I should say I um I, my primary love is is words. I I love etymology. I love concepts. I I love verbalization. And as I say, I grew up in that period in which philosophy was done continental philosophy, not not Anglo-American analytic philosophy. Continental philosophy was done through that kind of wordplay. Uh, you know, I was schooled as a debater at school and I, I, I was doing theatre at, at university. I was directing crazy plays by the East German uh, post-Brechtian playwright Heine Muller. Uh, wow. so, so that lineage is certainly there. You know, there were, there were moments in which I'm embarrassed to say I wanted to be an actor, um, but then realised that if you actually want a permanent audience you should become a teacher because they have to turn up and you can just, uh, you know, entertain them once a week, whether they like it or not. Um, Though lectures are very out of fashion these days. So, yeah, in a weird way, if you you actually want to be a successful actor, become a a lecture-based teacher. Um, Yeah, so so what you're saying certainly chimes with, with, with me.
0: What is your creative process in terms of how do you make the invisible visible by dreaming up ideas, Developing them into concepts and then bringing them to actualization.
1: As someone who was trained in philosophy, th- that's a bit of a pretentious thing to say, let's say um, half trained in a kind of half baked version of philosophy. I certainly couldn't call myself a philosopher. But as somebody who went through that undergraduate and, and postgraduate training, um, I think I approach things with a very strong conceptual lens. And I don't mean think abstractly, I I like to characterise this more as kind of mid-level categories, which is uh, an idea that's come out of some design researchers and design theorists. I do tend to find that I think in a very mid-category level way. And what I mean is that if I'm in a situation, if I'm talking to a research partner, a client on a particular problem that we're bringing social service design to, they will be very fixated on their current situation. And uh, I'm, I'm always quite surprised at myself at my ability, or surprised at the reaction of people to my ability to just lift them out of those current circumstances and begin to see the conceptual frame that they're currently in. And then I have a very—I mean, as a as somebody who's quite academic, uh, quite philosophically trained—I I have an absolute commitment to reading, reading widely. Although, again, reading is a strong term. I think these days it's mostly just scanning. Um, and so I, I, I think a crucial part of a lot of what I'm hesitant to call creative, but what is possibly part of my creative process, is having an, a, a very broad base of experiences, precedents, knowledge, concepts to draw on. So, in situations in which I'm kind of have this habit of mid-level categorising what people are kind of doing and saying that sounds like it's this sort of thing, that sounds like it could be thought of as this, noticing their existing conceptual frames, I then tend to have, I'm sounding a little too self-assured about this um, and so I just need to clarify that I'm, I'm describing it as I go, um, I tend to have a capacity to draw on a wide knowledge base to then offer them alternative conceptual frames. So, uh, definitely I've noticed that people find that of value of the way in which I interact with those types of problems. So, it's, it, it's this funny habit to not hear exactly what are the circumstances right here and now of their dominant, dominating sort of present conditions, but instead to sort of start to hear where that's coming from uh to to kind of analyze it to be able to locate it to put it in a context and then to compare it with a fairly broad breadth of other contexts um and to that extent i I suppose i've always thought that if i had to characterize creative process that i might use uh i think it's more, I remember Arthur Kessler kind of talking about concepts of bisociation, that creativity is putting two notions together rather than coming up authentically with a whole new third thing. So I think I'm I'm quite adept at that kind of conceptual blending and certainly find that that's my, the way I proceed. And so the last piece I might say about my creative process is, I mean, I am – I am a teacher. Uh, I think that's my core practice. My core design practice is, is I think, being able to discern where students at any level are coming from and to know uh, things that I'm trying to explain to them and then to be able to blend those two environments, that kind of conceptual blending, that Kersler uh, idea of association sort of to, to blend them so that people can actually shift from where they currently are to coming to understand a new concept and operating the world uh, in a different way um, so I yeah I do have a feeling that I have a very teacherly researchly academic version of a creative process but it's it hasn't it's always odd to me how much people outside of academia but even sort of students appreciate being lifted not to philosophic levels of abstraction, but just to to be able to see working concepts, um, Bertolt Brecht called it crude thinking, uh, which, again, would be quite nice to think I was doing crude thinking. I think it's a slightly pretentious title. And then I might say one last thing, which is, uh, you know, I, I, I am known for being horribly critical about everything Uh, It it came from working with Tony Fry for a long time and being very critical of, of everything sort of being oriented towards unsustainability. It came from working and teaching in design schools where the way in which new ideas are developed is through crit. So, I exist in a world which celebrates as productive criticism. I think most places outside design schools and design studios find criticism to be abhorrent and divisive and uh, really part of the partisanship, which is ripping our societies apart. I think think there is something creative that comes from uh, a type of criticality. Obviously, if you're just wholly critical and cynical, uh, you alienate everybody and you, you fail to come up with anything constructive. But the whole purpose of design is is constructive crit. And so I remember seeing a really terrible book once that tried to very uncreatively fuse creative and critical together. I think the title of the book was Creaticality. Creaticality, like criticality and create together. And it was a very stupid concept, which definitely didn't do what it was trying to say. But I just mention it now because I do think when you have a kind of permanent disgruntledness that things could be better, the quality of things is not quite where they are, that society could be reorganised, that there are other ways of living, um, that it kind of forces you into a permanent state of creativity, that you're, whenever you read something you're thinking, is that, is that where I want to go, is that something, what, what might be an unanticipated consequence? So I, I, I do want to take the opportunity to say I think criticality is absolutely essential to a creative process it's certainly, it's certainly key to mine. And, again, when I first started teaching in design uh, and, and being exposed to crit, uh, again, I don't want to blow my own trumpet too much, but it was always odd to me how much students uh, and, and colleagues appreciated the way I critted, which, you know, on Twitter sounds horrible. I sound like a horrible person But supposedly I have heard in studios it's a very constructive way of helping people reframe where they're going. And so I think, yeah, a lot of my creative process is crit-based, a lot of it is teaching-oriented, and a lot of it uh, sort of is based on this sort of philosophic legacy, which is my, my pretentious past.
0: Creativity is the ability to make the invisible visible by taking what is not to create what is, and it manifests what's inside you and around you by transcending the obvious, ordinary and routine, embracing originality and making unique connections between disparate universes, past and present, to light the way into the future in new ways. And like you clearly stated, rejecting the conventions and constantly analyse and question and challenge the status quo in the everyday life and provide an alternative, which means infusing your imagination, taste, style and inherent messiness with, with inner desperation and persistence by swimming courageously against the tide in search of the authentic and new while staving off false promises of easy gratification and immediate success in a world saturated with consumer-led celebrity culture where everyone looks the same and everything is for sale what are the key skills needed to survive and thrive as a transition designer?
1: I think one of the first things we always try to emphasize about transition design is, is that it's vision led designing. So, design in the 20th century was vision led. These were kind of modernist utopias, very much coming out of a restricted set of people. They were quite individually dreamed up and they were imposed on people, whether they liked them or not. So, modernism literally destroying your house and then replacing it with a Le Cabousier machine for living. So it used to be vision-led and we realised the mistake about that, uh, about having very limited input into those visions and those visions sort of being ill-informed in terms of their rationality and and, uh, uh, imposed in ways that didn't allow them to be so well adapted to. So I think one of the consequences is that a lot of the creative professions, uh, non-art creative professions, have become extraordinarily timid. And cowardly and scared to to dream and fantasize. I always spend a lot of time saying to students, "How many of you fantasize? How many of you daydream?" And and obviously I don't mean that in any kind of lewd way. I mean literally in that old sense of doodling utopian landscapes or imagining different ways of living or, or building you know, social fiction, what John Thacker likes to call social fiction, so that you pull away from the sort of techno side of science fiction. So, more more in the Le Guin style of just imagining, you know, what would it mean if if every household had had two couples in it, uh, which is a Le Guin scenario, for example, instead of just a single couple in a kind of heterosexist way. Um, and I'm always surprised that, that students, design students, don't do that anymore, the kind of the vision, particularly male vision of boys who became car designers and they just used to spend their time doodling different kind of concept cars. I'm always surprised that designers don't don't tend to do that. Young designers don't tend to do that so much. And I think it's very fashionable to imagine dystopian futures. It's, it's totally out of fashion to, to go out in the public and say, I think we should live this way. I really think we should live this way I'm I'm, going to convince people I'm going to I'm going to you know uh, nail my flag to this this vision this this way of going forward it's very uncool to do that it's obviously very neoliberal to just imagine you can't predict and who knows and this weird kind of sense that the future is going to be better than anything you could ever imagine when in fact it keeps on turning out to be worse um so so that that version of visioning, I think, is a really important skill that we try to recultivate. Again, even just in the way I described it then, it has not a good palette. We, we have very clichéd versions of what the pictures of the future look like. They, they look like a kind of semi-suburban, agrarian utopia of people living at peace with animals. We have photomontages in architecture, you know, or we have line arts uh, uh, illustrations from science fiction novels, or we have Black Mirror. I mean, we just both the content and the form of how we vision as a society. I feel is is bankrupt. Uh, there's a real deficit in in both form and content. So, one of the crucial skills to be a transition designer is is having a commitment and bravery to identifying uh, powerful futures that you you would like to share with others and convince them are valuable, uh, and having a wide palette of ways of representing them. Uh, Along with that goes a really odd conundrum. There's an odd conundrum in being a transition designer in that you have to be forceful. You have to be aggressive. You have to be fighting against the status quo. You need to be saying, do not be satisfied with the the minor pleasures that the current system gives you, do not tolerate the pains that you are told are necessary. Uh, uh, I want to to bring you on a journey that there is something else. And so you have to be quite forceful, as I said, sort of brave. And yet on the other hand, once you have people with you, you have to be incredibly, uh, I don't like the word humble, but you, you need to hold space for diversity you need to hold space for people getting hold of your vision and, and beginning to modify it and make it their own. Uh, so it's this weird combination of, of being a lot more forceful than I think a lot of designers are. Some, some design leaders have giant egos and are able to be very forceful. Uh, but a lot of designers, I think, who are more creative uh, tend to spend their time sheltered. Uh, they, they got into design to to sit at a desk drawing, or these days to sit at multiple screens, uh, moving things around. Uh, And they like that environment, that sort of quiet version of creativity. And unfortunately, transition designers in particular, uh, spend a lot of time talking to people and convincing people and arguing with people and trying to enlist people and enroll people. It's a political organizing activity. And the creativity is in that. The creativity is in the teaching and the translating and the bringing along. Um, and that's not that's not a, a mindset though I hate that word uh, that's not a disposition an orientation of a, a lot of people who get into design uh, and and so I think yeah that last thing is is there has to be a much more collective sense of action amongst transition designers it's very crucial that transition designers not go with hero narratives that they spend a lot of time, Understanding that they do this piece because somebody else is doing that piece, and they are both equally important, and they will both fail if either doesn't uh, succeed. So, being a designer who is part of an alliance, a network, uh, who's committed to kind of certain values and, and uh, acting in that coll- collective fashion again, things that almost no design school teaches, uh, things that aren't in the current sort of world view or, or or way of being in the world of people who are attracted to design so transition design tries to change design but it's also trying to change designers and to some extent it's trying to open up design to other types of people who might use the material craft means of design to begin doing this type of this type of transition change this type of collective action towards preferable futures
0: excellent perspectives Cameron and you triggered Some thoughts. We all exist in time, which is a progression from the the past into the future, moving in one direction. And design is a vehicle for time and social change that interconnects society, entertainment, politics, fashion and technology, which translates into popular culture, so practices, beliefs and rituals, prevalent in society at any given point in time. And popular culture expresses society's shared experiences and is a function of what society consumes through entertainment, through the clothes we wear, through through fashion, through politics and and the technology that we we use and are exposed to. Take the 1970s, for example. That was an era that was typically categorised as being, as having, a rapid pace of societal change, an egalitarian society with diversity and broad-ranging styles and tastes. For example, the socio-cultural movements like punk that had a distinct anti-establishment and and left-wing political views, promoting individual freedom and do-it-yourself ethics and stylized within bondage trousers, torn clothing and Mohican hairdos. And then on the other side you had the glam rock movement which was a reaction to the to the rock mainstream manifested through stomping rhythms and androgynistic imagery and futuristic clothing and there was multiple other movements like like disco and and northern soul and many other social-cultural activities kind of going on during that era but perhaps the drug-induced hallucinogenics from the free living Bohemian hippie movement of the, the 60s transmitted itself into an, an evolved form that manifested its way, way through those or, or inspired those kind of movements, and either directly or indirectly. Anyway, the, the point being was that these were unnerving times with a lot of societal unrest, which created these subcultures that emerged from these societies that was used almost as a vehicle to campaign against the the establishment, the status quo. And so the artists, designers and the creatives really seemed to take a stand against these oppressive forces and applied that through their artistic expression without fear of retaliation. Whereas today, especially in the Western world, perhaps things are too happy and too uniform at least at the surface level. But hey, make no mistake, I'm not forgetting about the pressing enormous issues that need addressed today. For example, climate change and the global environmental movement Extinction Rebellion, which was founded a few years ago to campaign against governments to address climate change and biodiversity loss and to mitigate the risk of ecological and social demise. But it seems the Western world in particular is more stabilised and conservative in that way, as opposed to what some generations had to deal with and the adversity that they encountered previously.
1: The one thing I would add to, to that, that, pic, that, that, that moment, which I think is totally rightly characterised, that there was a diversity of style, just even style, yeah. obviously a diversity of ideas, that and that doesn't exist, and and so there there definitely does seem to have been a closing down of what is considered to be designerly, what is considered to be elegant. We've definitely um, moved into a much less diverse kind of aesthetic realm. But I think the other thing that I would characterize about that period in the seventies, in addition to to various cultural experiments which might have included uh, uh, you know hallucinogenic substances, yeah. opening the mind to other possibilities, which is oddly coming back now, but more as a kind of palliative care strategy. Uh, We don't have good healthcare, so why don't you take some Silo-7 and just, like, deal with your your (laughs) impending doom. Um, But I think um, that period was also the period of of globalisation. It was also the period of sort of... uh, second, third waves of migration and new types of migration, not just from empire within empire. But so I think a lot of the diversity that we saw in certain countries, particularly North Atlantic countries in that period, um, also came from an internationalisation. What's happened is that we now live post that internationalisation in which the styles of the products and ways of living of the global consumer class have removed that diversity and replaced it with the sameness so that I can live in the same way in, in Sydney, Nairobi or, or Shenzhen. Yes. Um, you know, I, I can go to the same shops and my houses look the same and I eat the same food and my clothes are the same. Whereas I think in the, it's always important to remember in the 70s, I mean, there, there were shocks of different types of people beginning to move down the streets as you move down the streets. Um, there were waves of immigration uh, in various countries, obviously, prior to that. But uh, it, it was a, it's difficult to put yourself in the mindset, I think, of somebody living in the 1970s, having come from very homogenous societies in the 50s, even with their existing sort of uh, immigration waves, then encountering just completely different ways of living and being exposed to it. Uh, so it was a, it was that it's always important to remember that the period of globalisation was a period of exposure to different difference. Yeah before capital got in there and just turned it all into the same looking product. Upon reflection, what are your lessons
0: learned in terms of the pitfalls to avoid and the keys to success that you can share with aspiring transition design practitioners?
1: One must not underestimate the forces that exist to hold the current situation in place. And those forces are sometimes evil, greedy capitalists uh, and rentiers and and landlords. Uh, They're sometimes literally people, individuals you can identify, who are making ill-informed decisions that benefit themselves and not everybody. But there is also structures. There are also inertias. There are infrastructures. There are material conditions that condition us. It's always quite nice in in German that that kind of, this was a point made by a design theorist called Willem Flusser that the the same word for thing is within the word condition, that you are conditioned by things. So it's always important when trying to inspire people to be transition designers, to inspire people to sort of uh, lend their creativity to the project of systems level change. So it's important to inspire them and, 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 as I said before, really like get them imagining strongly and diversely in ways that I f- feel have, have disappeared a little. But, but it's important also to give them a strong education in just how inertial the current system is and for them to begin to see all the little things that hold, hold the current in place. So, those are often economic, uh, you know, you go and and get an education so that you can make a change and it costs a fortune and you're indebted. So, you take a job to pay off the debt and then you suddenly find yourself addicted to to that salary and that way of life. You you sort of literally structure yourself into mortgages or, or rent in expensive cosmopolitan cities and and follow the model of raising your family and, and then all of a sudden you're kind of stuck and, and the reason you invested in the education is never able to be action. So I think there are those economic things that you need to take into account. Um, but there's also this sense that you get addicted to the satisfiers that are given to you. And one of the primary ones actually I think is, is work, one of the things I, I'm trying to think about a little at the moment is the people who, who work for a big consultancy that might be informing a fossil fuel company will do really creative work and will put together a report that allows that fossil fuel company to fudge how it's responding to something like climate change and maintain their profitability. And, and that person goes home and doesn't think, oh, I'm, I'm awful and sullied for having done something I don't believe. They think, I worked really hard. I was really productive. I I did something incredible today. I I saw through a really difficult political situation. So what I'm trying to say is getting people to notice when they get addicted to particular types of satisfiers, particularly the way organisations and corporations structure satisfiers for employees and workers, is the key thing to notice so that you don't get re-yoked to the status quo and can maintain a sense that other ways of living are possible and so continue to work on the project of something like transition design. So I think one of the pitfalls that that I'm always sort of trying to get people to just notice is that uh, it's, I, I don't want to characterise it as a laziness or, or you know people just giving up a kind of hopeless cynicism i think it's reverse i think it's important to kind of empathize and say people making defuturing decisions don't do it because they're evil they do it because they feel really productive at work when they do it there are people lending their creativity to maintaining business as usual and they are clever and smart and they go home thinking that that was a often they don't go home because they love their work so much they <laughs> just keep going and they sit there thinking this is this is this is what life is i am i am i'm killing it right now with all the irony of that phrase so yeah i do want to sort of draw attention to the fact that it, it it's you have to be one way i've tried to put it at one point sorry and i'm rambling a bit is is creative alienation it's important to try to always be alienated from the situation you're in so even when it's uh, you know, she sent me high, just died yesterday. So I'll use his term flow. Even when you're in the flow state, you're totally like it's a nice set of combination of challenge and skills and you feel like time doesn't exist because you're just absorbed in it. Great. That's good. But really important to have forces that alienate you from that, that say, why was that flow? Why were you getting that satisfier? Is that, is that heading in the right direction? How else should you be working? So you need critical friends, you need, you need critical colleagues, you need critical contexts, you need things that can estrange you, as Bertolt Brecht used to say, to estrange you from your current conditions so that you avoid this kind of pitfall. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's important. You've got to keep challenging yourself. You've got, to, you've got to try and be slightly uncomfortable and not only in a flow state. Even if you think you're a transition designer, you need, you need to to maintain that that level of of wondering whether you are having unanticipated consequences. Um, yeah, so sorry, it's a convoluted point, but it, it's a, it's not really self-criticality because I don't want people to be disciplining themselves like Foucauldian subjects, but it's a matter of always wondering. Uh, whether you are being yoked into the existing system again because of the pleasures it derives, and not insignificant pleasures—they're not—they're not the consumer goods of telling on the television and, and eating a, uh, drinking an artisanal beer. They're the the existential pleasures of I am doing a good job, and it's how to be alienated from those.
0: You're spot on again, Cameron. Never selling out, and like we said earlier, constantly analyse and challenge the status quo to provide an alternative that is authentically creative and moves the world forward in a positive way. Tilton, forward, what's your vision for the future of transition design? And where do you see the role of creativity play?
1: So I think I'd answer to this in two different ways. I think in the short term, in the way in which I've been chatting to you, it's, it's hyper ambitious. It's a vision of a union of creatives acting in a coordinated fashion to find disparate initiatives that can be connected and related so that they begin to uh, enable a a systems level transition, a a switch point, a, a phase change in our society. So it's a vision of sort of really ambitious people who are who are, who, are risking, who are risking relationships to partners and clients by saying no, by really forcefully pushing for one thing and not another, and then really creative people thinking, well, I'll say yes to this, but only because I've got a friend here and another friend there who I know are doing this. So, if we both do it for this client or partner and they're doing their client and partner's And we all together do a a speculative project, another project, a a community organising project. If we do this fourth thing, those four things together are going to begin to sort of orient society. They're going to begin to to make change. So so I have this this vision and hope that uh, people educated with with transition design begin to to act as a coordinated set of change, loosely coordinated, loosely coupled set of change agents who, who are who are working all the time connecting and talking about what they're doing and what else needs to be done, people who, pers- who are pursuing the project of change and not just a series of clients and partners. So people who take clients and partners because it will help their project, not because the client or partner just turned up. Um, so, so people who really have a, a, a sense of mission and partner who have a vision and, and a working coordinate. So I have this one mid-term vision of of really collective action, uh, loosely coordinated collective action by, by by particularly creative designers engaged in strategic design. But I have uh, a slightly ambiguous second longer-term vision, uh, which is a world in which people are not having to work so hard at change the idea of transitions is not that we're in a permanent state of transition it's the idea that it is a moment of phase change it's a moment in which the interconnected system that held the current in place everything about it changes it reorganizes and then we we settle not forever it's not ahistorical. it will have its own challenges but for a while it settles and, and that was the way the kind of 20th century settled, obviously with lots of terrible things like holocausts and genocides uh, occurring and, and enormous amounts of environmental destruction, but everyday life settled into a pattern of living, people in houses with kitchens, going to schools and getting jobs, and it was unsustainable, but it was a pattern of sustained existence that people tolerated and celebrated and got satisfied. I'm, I'm looking forward to that future of resettling on the other side of the transition and that would be a moment in which I am hoping many more people are doing much more creative activities at the small scale not coordinated large-scale recreation of society but people engaged in in disparate diverse activities uh, because life has settled into some kind of transition so I, I it's a it's a weird kind of vision because I don't want it to be feel like some ahistorical utopia like everything settled down and I you know as Marx famously said you know I, I I do some fishing in the morning and I make some bread in the afternoon and then I paint in the evening those weren't his examples but I, I don't want that though it's a version of that it is a sense that people are working less uh, people are not in jobs people are doing projects uh, it's uh, you know I'm just. I'm just in the middle of rereading uh, Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, so it's exactly like the utopia she describes of people taking jobs for different periods in their life, uh, doing what's needed. Um, so I don't want it to be ahistorical. I want to have a sense that it's not perfect, but it, it is a moment in which people are settling. So to some extent I would almost say, given your kind of interesting creativity, What I'm I'm hoping is that a period of coordinated, forceful creativity for change is what will get us to a society in which we can all be more quietly and interestingly in small collectives creative again, in ways that we don't get to be now. So it's so hard to kind of have a side gig or a hobby or uh, some community organizing or doing some some cultivation of a new skill. So hard to do that now because we're such a 24-7 existence. So I, I want to get to a world in which s- sort of creativity with a small C, everyday creativity, creativity by everyone. I, want, I have a vision that, that that's where transition design will get us. Transition design will affect the transition and then we'll be able to I- enjoy uh, the other side of it, uh, it won't be perfect. There'll be lots of challenges still. It won't be equitable. We'll, we'll still be having to think about different things. It will still have a history. But uh, it, it definitely will give us more time to be more creative than we get to be now.
0: Thank you, Cameron. That prospect is exciting. But just how soon is the future? One thing for sure is the future is unwritten and everything is possible. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers. How to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.